love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll be reading today from 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 18, and also be reading John 18, 33 to 37. Will you stand with us as a way to honor God's word, um, if you're able? 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 to 18. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say for you, um, say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that have um, done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only um, you shall solemnly warn them to show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who reign over you, and he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of our fields and vineyards and all of our orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your wine vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in the days you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And now we turn to John 18, 33 to 37. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, the chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Thank you, Randy. You may be seated. Yes, you are. Good. So you're wondering... um, What's going on here? This is not the doctrine of creation. I thought we were in Genesis. That's right. Normally, we do uh, just going through the text and looking at uh, what we call continual text and letting God determine the order of things. But today, given what's on many of our minds, 
that I think it's important to pivot and think about where we find ourselves as Americans uh, 48 hours from election day under the authority of God's word, that we ultimately believe in a practical faith. A lot of people don't think that way. Say, well, you know, being a Christian is this old stale thing. You just kind of cast it off to the side. It has nothing for me today. And we'd say absolutely the exact opposite, that it informs how we think, how we behave, how we process big decisions, right, our conduct. And here we find ourselves on the edge of a big moment in our country. How do we handle this in a way that befits our calling in Christ? After all, what we're here to do today, say it'd be very reckless, you see the heading on this or something, say we're going to endorse a candidate or talk about specific laws. Not at all. That would be, I would argue, an abuse of the pastoral office. But what we must do is look at what we call a political theology. That is how, as Americans, under the authority of God's word, do we approach this time in our nation's history and do it to his glory, that we're about the riches in Christ, the beauties of Christ, what, he's, what God has done in Jesus for us. How do we represent him well when so many are at each other? And as you know, you say you live in uh, kind of similar neighborhoods that I do, and you see this, the signs go back and forth in your neighborhood, and you say there's such contention, and you go on, I'm not on social media, but perhaps you are, and you see what's being uh, spitted back and forth there, and you say, how is a Christ follower do I navigate these times? What's a good political theology? What's kind of in my back pocket as those states light up blue or red on Tuesday night? Now, in this realm of political theology, Christians have, as we often do, have made the mistake of gravitating towards one or two of, of the extremes. So on the one hand, I think you have those who process things very much in the idea of what we would call a theocracy. That a theocracy is when the church and the state overlap. That we reason, we say, in theory, this sounds very good. You say, well, wouldn't it be nice if all the politicians were just on board with what we taught here at Providence Church, that it'd all be going great, that we would use politics to advance our cause, and uh, wouldn't that just be a very fine thing? And I, I would argue, say, it's actually been tried and has had disastrous effects. That all the way back to the time of Constantine, right? That he legalizes Christianity, and you say, well, this is a great moment, but actually what happens is then your, your bishops, your churchmen, become political appointments. That having the state's hands in the church is actually not glorious. It creates a whole different set of problems, right, in that kind of uh, striving to use the state as a vehicle to advance the kingdom of God. And again, how many of us process what we're trying to do as faithful Christians through this lens and the problems that it creates? In other words, do we see Washington as the means by which we're to carry out our calling to make disciples? You say, if you ask the early church, you cast the idea, do you think Rome, uh, are we supposed to get the senators on our side and, you know, to get the emperor on our side, and if we can just pass the right laws in the Senate and get the right guy in there, then the kingdom of God will advance. So I would argue that's not what we're to do. We don't want a theocracy. So that the way our faith has advanced has always been by what faithful proclamation of what Jesus has done in our lives, to live it out, to, to proclaim, to, to show his love to the world, and to let God's spirit penetrate the heart. So I don't want to look to Washington or any other elected official to overlap with the church, to advance the causes of Providence Church. That's, that's not the idea. On the other hand, right, we, we can say, well, it's not a theocracy, the overlap of church and state. The other extreme has been a complete removal from the state. And I think that this too has its roots in the fourth century. So Constantine becomes, uh, legalizes Christianity, the bishops become political appointments, and a movement starts, what we call monasticism, right? The, the monks, the ascetics, and they said, we're going to withdraw from everything. 
If that's the game, we're going to the desert, literally. They put up the walls. They said, you're over there and we're over here and never shall the two meet. Say, this can lead to also very disappointing things. I would say becoming apolitical, uh, completely apolitical, or what I would say is anti-patriotic, as different from nationalism, anti-patriotic being a kind of contempt for your motherland. Say, that's the asceticism problem. And it's not just an old problem. You say, well, nobody here is into the monastic movement or to be becoming an ascetic. But I would say this movement actually is becoming very attractive in some ways. So a book like Rob Dreer's, The Benedict Option, a very influential book in Christian circles, making this argument to say, let's just circle the wagons. Let's face it, there's us, there's them out there. They don't understand us. We're talking past each other. Let's just get the wagon, you know, kind of just be very happy here at Providence Church, and the two will kind of become increasingly separated. Is that the way we're to behave? Do we have that luxury? Yesterday, I'm at gas station in Westlake, and I go in and young chaps working the, uh, working the register, and I strike, I said, what do you think's gonna happen on Tuesday with this election? And he basically says, well, you know, I don't, I, I don't have the information to vote. It's really none of my business. I'm just, you know, gonna sit this one out. And I thought, well, that, is that really true? I mean, you're working at a gas station. I mean, there's actually a lot spinning around about, you know, fossil fuels and about employment, and I think whether you like it or not that this is gonna in, affect you, right? I mean, the, the kind of Aristotelian idea that all of us, whether we like it or not, are contributing to the polis, that we are citizens of our local communities. Here we are. We are influenced by the laws, and we've been given the luxury to participate. Is there something there? And so what I guess we want to drive at here today is to say the idea of a theocracy, to say our goal is not to have a complete overlap between the church and Washington, and yet our goal is not to completely retreat from the state altogether and do our own thing, but what is a healthy political theology? How do we represent Christ in a very complicated time. And going back now to a very old text, our text for today, 1 Samuel. When it was written, we don't know, but time written about, we do. About 1050 BC. And this is the time when Israel would move from the period of being judged by a group called the Judges into the united monarchy, into having a king. You know, Samuel's the key figure. He's the prophet. And we've read about this is the time in their history where they're not liking uh, the, the prospects to judge them. And so the people of Israel come and they say what? That they ask for a king like other nations, specifically verse, uh, verses 4, right? They, they, they want a king to judge them. And verse 7 is very crucial. Say, so God says, you don't know what you're asking for. See, the problem wasn't in asking for a king. The problem's not government in and of itself, as the Israelites are asking. We know that God was going to raise up a king. He had already said that back in the Pentateuch, back in Deuteronomy. He said, you'll get your king. Say, the problem here is not government per se. The problem is that the people thought that their real liberator was going to be an earthly territorial figure. It's as if the Israelites are sitting around, right? They're saying, you know what? We re- you know what's going to make all of our problems going to go, what, what they're, what's going to make all our problems go away, what's going to make all the corruption go away? We just need a good human leader. We just need that. And then we're going to be smooth sailing. So again, the problem's not government. The problem is that what they expected of an earthly territorial king was sinful. And you notice what God goes to, right? Through Samuel again, he says, you know, they've not rejected you, Samuel, the voice, the mouthpiece, but they've rejected me as their king because they're confusing what real liberty is. Again, great hallmark of ancient Israel is the great hallmark of American society, say liberty, the very backbone of our system. And what does God say in verse 8? 
In one line, he reminds them of the greatest story of redemption and liberty of all time. When God delivered them out of Egypt. That they're in bondage, there's no hope, right? They're backing in on themselves, that they're grumbling, that there's no way out except the divine intervention of God who miraculously delivers Israel out. And he said, you've forgotten the real story of liberty. And so I ask you today, covenant community, say, where's our real story of liberty? Getting in the right team on Tuesday night? Or to say, no, my real liberties come from the God of old who's delivered me in Christ. This unshakable thing. You see, my problem isn't the right laws. My problem isn't getting my team in Washington. Say, the problem is down here in my heart that I have a pride problem, that I'd rather be selfish and think about Austin and pay no attention to God, that I've rebelled against him. When given the chance, I look out for number one. Say, my problem's not out there as if it could be simply solved with a few laws. No, my problem's in here. I need liberty from my sin, from myself. Who's able to do that? Who has done that? It's what God has done in Jesus. So I think a lot of us, again, Christians say, you know, we really are fighting, we're at each other, and say, if only this person got in, say, no, that's not, the, so that's not where real liberty is. Real liberty is in the God of the Bible who's given everything to us in Christ, that we're free in him, we delight in him. It doesn't matter which earthly person is in there, that we have great joy in the completed work of Jesus. Here's a little thought experiment. Think back the last 12 years from 2008. 2008 to 2020, Barack Obama and Donald Trump are about as two different men that you could ever put in a room, right? Is that safe to say? These are very different men. And uh, no doubt that our health care costs have gone up, that we've been taxed differently, that our employers have been taxed differently, that there's been different uh, industries that have been affected differently, that there's been very painful things, painful things with childcare, and things have gone back and forth cyclically, and all that, the up and the down, there's two very different men, and they're very different teams, and they're very different way of organizing things, and yet I want to say here we are, God's people, brothers and sisters in him, he's given us another day, he's given us what can never be taken away from us, and I think that's a healthy perspective this week, and no matter what happens, if we look to an earthly fallen person as being our liberator instead of the God of the Bible, then we're really behaving sinfully. That we're free in Christ, that we delight in him. Isn't that the truth? Take a look at a few of these Psalms, right? I think that Psalm 146 would be a good one to have on the fridge this week. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man that is a person in whom there is no salvation. Do you see that? When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So again, I take you back. The states are lighting up Tuesday night. Maybe we don't know for a while. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania's votes are going to be counted. They'll be coming in. We might be a while. You know, the markets are going up and down. And you say, I need to come back to this verse. And my hope's not in these earthly people whose plans are going to go return to the earth or after four years, they're no longer. But my hope is in what God has already done in Jesus, that I'm free in him. And in fact, he's going to use us no matter who is in control. So it's sinful. It's sinful for us, God's people, to put our ultimate hope in any fallen earthly person, that our real problem is our hearts, and God has delivered us. He's given us real liberty in Jesus and that redemption story, the great redemption story, is in, it belongs to the God of the Bible. It's really his, and this is where true liberty is found. And we all know people 
right, who have been literally enslaved but wonderfully free, like Paul of the Bible. Say it's not just political freedom, but it's about being free in light of our maker. So got point one there. It's sinful. God's people asking for a king, thinking that all their solutions are there. That's a problem, and so it is with us. Our solutions are not going to, all of our problems won't be solved one way or the other on Tuesday night. I think we, we get that. Let's keep that in mind. Now, secondly, why is it wrong, again, to build on this, to put so much hope there, is that I think that humans don't handle power well. That's the second point that he makes here, right? God makes through Samuel from verse 10. He says, okay, I'll relent. I'll give them a king, but do they know what they're asking for? That this king is going to get them involved, notice, in foreign entanglements, that he's going to tax the people. He's going to do things against the people's will. He's going to make uh, pass certain laws that get people, our loved ones, involved in ways that they might, and on and on. In other ways, it's saying that this is a burdensome thing, and to think that all your problems are going to be resolved by somebody who can be so easily corrupted. Again, this isn't a point about politicians. This is a point about the human heart. That when we're given so much control and power, that we often don't handle it well. Remember our origin series. Say, what are we made for? We're made to represent God, to be his ambassadors, to shine, right? To, to shine the light on him, if you will. That's why we're made not to have power in and of ourselves and to advance causes. And that's why so many in leadership go astray. And you know, our founders, they, they knew this. That if you read something, if you, you know, I very much love the founding documents of our country. I think there's a lot of great genius there, no doubt. And you read something like the Federalist Papers, read that famous Federalist Paper, number 51 by Madison, a great masterpiece. And you remember what Madison says. He says, if every man was an angel, we wouldn't need government at all. And it's in that Federalist Paper that he unpacks checks and balances. What he's getting at is to say we all recognize if we give one individual too much power, we cast too many expectations upon one person, if power is concentrated, it's going to go very badly. We're not made to handle that. Actually, that's the rightful turf of God, and our hope is in him. And it lives out, right, that this prediction in 1 Samuel 8, if you know the Bible well, which many of you do, you say this is exactly what happens to Saul. Saul's going great. You know, God's with him. God pours out his grace, and things are going very well until Saul's corrupted. He becomes selfish and does his own thing. And again, say, each of us do that. And I ask you today, one thing as I talk to friends on both sides of the political divide, you say, everybody feels governed against their will. Say, if you notice that, it doesn't matter. Say, there's something going on in Washington to say it's not going my way, very much like 1 Samuel 8, that I'm, you know, this is happening and it's outside of our control or we're contributing taxes to this cause that we don't believe in. Say, all of us at some level feel governed against our wills. And again, we look unto Jesus to say, if you ever had an example in history of somebody that was taken advantage of by bad politicians, we don't think of the passion narrative that way. Say, who would, who would outflank Jesus on that question? Jesus' demise comes precisely at the hands of corrupt politicians at every turn. You know, his trial before the Sanhedrin, you have a lot of Jewish scholars debating that, to kind of the, the very nature of the trial in the middle of the night was against their own law, that they didn't uphold the rule of law, that they kind of kick the can down the street, they try to give it over to Herod, you know, who's just a, a kind of a surrogate appointment, and Herod says, well, I don't know what to do, I don't really see the problem, no rule of law there. Then back to Pilate, you remember what Pilate says, I have it there in John 19:4. remember what Pilate, he says, this man's not guilty, he's innocent, 
and yet Jesus is executed as a criminal. If ever there's been an example of someone who's been moved or governed beyond their seemingly their will and their benefit, it's our Lord. I say, well, how does that inform how we as his followers should behave in a hostile political climate? Say, yes, I know we're all governed against our will, but our Lord suffered at the hands of politicians, and yet he represented what really mattered. He represented God the Father. He behaved with kindness. And say, that's a good model for us. Say, we know that the system that we have ultimately can lead to corruption. Our hope is not there, but our hope is in Jesus, and he's our model for how we're to handle these contentious times. And so I go back to the question, how do we envision advancing our purpose in Christ. Now, we've gotten off track, I think, of really coming out of the middle of the 20th century. You remember this phrase, but a lot of us still think in terms of what we would say a moral majority. Remember that term? They say, well, all we have to do as Christ followers is get that scale tipping in the right direction, 52-48. You know, we've got the American population generally on our side on that social issue. Haven't we done well? Look at how we've advanced the cause of Christ. Well, we think in terms of the moral... Now, here's the problem, and, and I don't mean to be provocative with this. I just think we've got to understand the times, and, and that's the, the, the moral majority is gone. That that's not coming back to America without a miraculous revival. Maybe God can do it, but I think we're much more on the trajectory of something like Western Europe. That if you look at Western Europe, you say, is this not the model we're going in America, places like France and Scotland, once, you know, large uh, percentage of Christ followers, now you say just through the rising secularity. Say, if we have the idea that our purpose as a church is to use Washington and a moral majority to advance the cause and just kind of tip the scales in the favor of God's word, then we've done our job. Say, I think that's the wrong idea. You know, another way, I think another phrase that has been used in our past when more of us were fervent Christians, that is, more Americans were fervent Christians, is the culture wars, right? That we're in a culture war for the definition of marriage or whatever it might be, that we're warring against the, say, remember what Jesus said in the second reading, though, in John 18, right? That he said, if my kingdom's of this world, then all my people would be fighting all the time. Say, so, yeah, we're in a war of ideas, but I don't really know if thinking in terms of a cultural, I think in both of these, again, kind of getting our person in, buying four more years, we got a few more years with some good judges. This is good for the kingdom of God. Is that how we're processing it? Or is it alternatively, again, we're like the remnant. That might be a better way of thinking about it. We're like the remnant in the Old Testament, the small band of the faithful, who God will use to be a light to others so long as we're faithful to him. And again, I only raise this to think about, are we going to use the system of Washington, D.C. and flawed people across the board, say nothing against them, we're all flawed, but is that our hope? Is that how we envision our mission and what we're trying to do here in Avon? Or is it alternatively that we're a remnant of God's people who's to faithfully live out our calling in him to proclaim it and let the Spirit of God work on our non-believing friends. It's a different mentality. And I think we give ourselves in the wrong position if we fail to understand that our country is not as Christian as it once was 
and what our calling is now, and there'll be very soon no points for being a fine Christian gentleman, as there always has been in America, right? That up until very recently, you say, of course I'm a Christian, what else would I be? I'm, I'm a, a man of, you know, of course I'm a good citizen, that those things too overlap. Those days are going to be gone, right? Much like it is in, in England. Say, in England, if you actually self-identify as a Christ follower, you, you mean it. Because there's no points for doing so otherwise. So I guess what we've learned here from 1 Samuel 8 is to say it's wrong for us to put our hope in mere people. We should hold it, but hold it very loosely. That if our aim is to use Washington as a vehicle, we say, do we really want to do that? And there's a lot of non-Christians there, and oftentimes that that system is such the way that it amplifies the corruption of our hearts. Are we thinking in terms of a moral majority or cultural reward? I say, no, maybe more like a remnant. But now thirdly, and, and a, a bit more hopeful here, third bold heading, God works his purposes through bad leaders and bad politicians. That you can go through all scripture, if you notice how often this theme comes up, you go back again, look at Exodus 9, 16. This is where God through Moses tells Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, the reason you're in power is so that my glory might be displayed. You see how striking that is? God's people are being persecuted terribly. They're being enslaved. It's a terrible time for God's people, but God tells Pharaoh, you're able to do this because what I'm about to do is gonna better amplify who I am and my glory. Take a look at this week sometime, Isaiah 45, and do in conjunction with Ezra 1. This is Cyrus, king of Persia. God says, I raised up Cyrus, king of Persia. He's not a follower of the God of the Bible. Cyrus is not, right? That he he worships the old ancestral gods of, of Persia, and God moves in his heart. You read Ezra 1. God stirs the heart of Cyrus in order to pass the legislation that allows God's people back to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem, in Israel. Now, this is not an on it, you know, on it, Jeremiah 27, 6, right? Nebuchadnezzar's God's servant. On and on it, God uses non-Christian acts to lawless people, people without the rule of law, to bring about his purposes for his people. Now, this is not to say, this is not to confuse the fact that God's people are to endorse an openly bad candidate. That's a different, that's a different idea. I'm not saying, but God will use his person, he uses all kinds of people to bring about his means. Another way of saying this, maybe a bit more catchy, is this. On Tuesday night, the wrong person will not be elected. The wrong person is never elected. It's very possible that the person we didn't want to be elected will be elected Tuesday night, but the wrong person from God's perspective will not be elected on Tuesday night. But God will use either one of these teams, non-Christian as they are, to bring about exactly the purposes that he wants. And that should give us great comfort. So again, you're watching Tuesday night. What are we thinking about? Gee, my person's not in there. I've just lost four more years. What about these judges? What about our cause as Christ followers? Or alternatively, God knows what he's doing. I'm to be faithful in him. I've been liberated in Christ. And maybe if my person's not in, maybe it's even going to be a a better chance for me to represent him. I think at this point, it's also worth mentioning this, very important, that every earthly leader will one day be judged by the real king. So be it Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler, any one of our presidents, 
Each one of us stands before the rightful judge and the, few, the, the real king. You say, that's the moment where there'll be a reckoning, and that is out of our hands, but we trust the just judge. God works his purposes through bad leaders and bad politicians. Now, at this point in the message, I think you're saying, well, it sounds like a very apolitical message, actually. I mean, you're just telling us that it's wrong to put our hope in kings and that it's a system that easily corrupts and God uses bad people in office to his ends. You say, all that's true, but, but still, that doesn't really inform what we're supposed to do. And I know many of you have already voted in our house. It's uh, very typical of our personalities. Mallory votes early every time, and I wait till the day of. Uh, I like going and standing there in person, and that's the case this year. So what about, I know many of you already voted, but let's pin this down a bit more. I think the key phrase in Christian political theology is this, Jesus is king. That's really what we believe, that Jesus is king. Now, in light of that, you say we read in the second reading in John 8, what does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? we just hanging around waiting to die then i mean so here we are to just you know lord i guess you've got just to do my mundane tasks is that just what we say no what we should understand by this is that we represent the king now those of us who put our faith in christ we're under the real king now we're subjects of the real king but also for a short period of time i'm also an american citizen and i have to be wise and a good steward of what he's entrusted to me this great privilege of voting and participating in our civic polity, how do I represent Jesus well? Say, so take a read of Romans 13, right? What's the purpose of the government? The purpose of the government is to do good. Who gets to define the good? Well, God gets to define the good. So how do I, in my conscience, while preserving Christian liberty in the church family, how do we participate in a way that represents Christ well? And here's a little bit more of the dilemma. And I ask, this is really tricky, because again, I love, uh, I, I love our founding documents, and I think uh, America in many ways is a miracle from its founding and some of the, the great geniuses there. But think about these two phrases. If you said there's kind of a slogan of our founding, would you say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness would be pretty high up there? Say so we love those things. I mean, liberty is the key. I mean, our hearts... Uh, we, we love life and liberty and the ability to pursue our own happiness. Those are very important ideas. But how do we understand that over against phrases in our New Testament like this? Anyone who would come after me should take up his cross and follow me. How do you square life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness with dying to self and following Jesus? How do we understand the great experiment of the founders, right, and thinking about our rights with Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 who says I don't claim my rights actually I've understood what I've come here to do is serve everybody and to suffer for you and that's precisely the tension that I think a lot of us have been wrestling with this particular election you say it's not for a lot of us there's real moral weighing and that's a good thing you say we really want to capture this I want to be a good American citizen I believe in being a good citizen I want to be, be honor you know think about my homeland and that it requires morality and virtue in order to sustain what we have again all the founders understood this we need faith and virtue but also I need to suffer for the sake of Christ and that it's not about me and getting my way. And I hope, again, that this gives you freedom, if you, again, whether you have voted and you need some peace or you are yet to vote, to think about how do I represent Jesus well? It's okay, it's good to participate in the election, to represent him, to think about the good, that he gets to define the good, while also allowing a kind of liberty in the church family as others who are in Christ to work that out. Two very practical points to close. 
you know, I, on our street, again, you have signs for both candidates. In fact, one person on our street has not one, not two, not three, but four signs for his camp. Like, he really wants us to know exactly where he stands. You know, and I'm thinking about this, and across the street, the other kind of signs go up, and you have that other phrase of Jesus in your mind, too, don't you, to love your neighbor. Say, how do I love my neighbor? I have very, in many ways, very strong views in a lot of this stuff, as I hope many of you do as well. I say there's ways of visioning the future of America. Say, I have strong views. But if those signs in my neighborhood prevent me in my heart from loving that person as Christ would, right? Because love is a moral virtue and not a feeling. We've been over that many times. If that's preventing me in my heart from loving that person, then that's really a sinful issue on my part. How do we love our neighbors, be good citizens, and then there you see an A, above all else, to behave with civility. You know, I get that question a lot here. How do you get in a conversation about you? How do you ever put up the, the Christ follower flag in today's world? I mean, isn't it clumsy and awkward? And I would say this, wouldn't it be very good and to, to start with kindness and civility? I'm not on social media, but I hear from others. I mean, just the way that people can treat each other in that kind of forum, right, where you're able to be distant and, you, you know, tone is lost and, the, you know, kind of vitriol out there and how everything's been politicized and things are unraveling and we lack civility and the ability to hold thoughts loosely and to be nuanced, you say, it's all those things that have made, again, th public discourse so important, right? Is that not the rightful turf of us Christians? To behave with kindness and civility, to marshal our points, to be nuanced, to say the only thing I'm really passionate about is the real king, but these other things, I, I'm involved, but I'm not zealous. I'm concerned, but I'm not hysterical. That kind of position, that kind of detachment in a healthy way, showing that we worship the real king, but I can be civil and kind and even love somebody even when they're being cruel and don't fully capture my own position well. That's what we're called to do. And secondly, again, say if we don't view what we're trying to do in terms of a, a moral majority or culture war getting our person in. I think a good way of thinking about this is this little phrase, a, a theology of faithful presence. A man named James Davison Hunter at the University of Virginia wrote a book called To Change the World, and he unpacks this again, influential book. He says, what we're called to do is to be faithfully present in our spheres of influence. Say to represent Christ, right? To maintain our distinctiveness as Christians, to be eager to do good, to be faithful at administering grace and kindness, to settle in for as long as God would have me here, to be faithfully present, to represent and vote the good, and to behave with kindness and civility. Friends, again, I come back to this upcoming Tuesday night. So we have our team. We want to see the states light up one color or another color. Where's our mind going to go? When we see somebody on the opposite side, maybe their side one, and you kind of have a bit of, well, what we'd call trash talking. You say, where is your heart in that? Say, can we remember a real political theology? Say, our hope's not in one of these teams on Tuesday night. Say, how sad if it was. Let's not think of Washington as the vehicle by which we're supposed to represent Christ. Maybe as the worse that gets, maybe it's going to be better for us. Secondly, the wrong person's not going to be elected on Tuesday night that God will work his purposes. But in the meantime, may we represent the real king while we have time to do so, knowing that he'll consummate his kingdom, that he's the judge. May we do it with kindness. May we do it with faithful presence. That's who we want to be. So I'll invite the team up as I pray. Father, we confess that we've put way too much energy 
and adrenaline into mere people. That we have hoped that certain individuals and certain offices would solve all of our problems. And we've been foolish to think that passing just the right laws at just the right times is how we're to live out our calling in you and to advance your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us for that. But help us not to be completely detached and from our world, but actually to be good citizens and to think about the issues that would matter to you to be involved and to allow also Christian liberty and charity among those Christ followers who see things differently. And Lord, help us to be those who recapture nuance and kindness and civility, these virtues that you teach us, and help us to stay calm when so much of the world isn't. And most of all, we thank you for King Jesus, that we have that unshakable victory in him. So we may keep our eyes there, not on these mere human actors. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, church, let's stand together and respond to the truth and song.